I'd like to begin with this simple question. The question is this. Are you a content Christian? In, in other words, are you a Christian who has learned to be content in whatever state you're in? Are you content with your calling in Christ? Are you content with your church family? Are you content with your marital status? Are you content with the wages you receive at work? Are you content with the property you own and the items you have? Are you a content Christian? If not, then the chances are you've become a discontent disciple who is constantly coveting what other people have as you compare your own lot in life to the lives of those who seem to have everything that you wished you had. And if this sounds like your situation, then it's important to understand that Christ Jesus has actually called every Christian to be content. With this as the goal, we'd all do well to realize that our earthly desires will always leave us feeling discontent. Those natural earthly desires that we all have, they will always leave us feeling discontent. And the proof of my point can be uh, shown in two simple words, Black Friday. <laughs> Black Friday is that day after Thanksgiving where customers crowd the aisles of our big box stores all in the hopes of acquiring the latest model of that product that they probably already own, but just not with that one new feature that just came out. Got to have it. It's sad to say that it's not uncommon for these post-Thanksgiving sales events to turn into a stampede of discontent consumers. As a matter of fact, since 2006, at least 14 people have died during a Black Friday shopping stampede. And you might be thinking, 14 people, that's not a lot of people. But put it into its context. 14 people died shopping. Yeah, 14 people died just trying to go get a deal on Black Friday. More than 120 have been injured as covetousness quickly turns into calamity. And this doesn't even include the latest Black Friday shootings that just occurred this past Friday as shots rang out in several stores across our country. For example, uh, the, the, the Walmart Supercenter there in Fayetteville, North Carolina, shots rang out there. The, there was uh, shots at the Greenville Mall in Greenville, North Carolina, and uh, as well as at the Ingram Park Mall there in San Antonio. Without debate, America is filled with discontent consumers, some of whom are ready to resort to acts of violence in order to acquire the product that they think is going to satisfy their desires, you know, for at least another year. At the same time, there are millions of Americans who can't afford the products that they really want to, uh, to, to purchase this year, but not to worry because now holiday shoppers are able to finance their purchases with the buy now, pay later apps like Affirm, Afterpay, and Klarna. Yeah, you can buy now and the promise of paying them later. It's, you know, the, the wimpy's approach at buying hamburgers. I'll gladly pay you Tuesday. For an hamburger today, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, I really feel sorry for you because you missed out on Popeye. <laughs> I 
But yeah, covetous consumers can now acquire the items that they can't afford by simply promising these services that they'll pay them later, you know, with, with the upcharge of that percentage that they'll be paying at the end of the day. And yeah, people are using these, these services. They're using these apps. Because they're trying to satisfy their carnal cravings. With all this in mind, we're going to spend some time today considering the importance of becoming content Christians. And with this as the focus, I want to open our Bibles here to Hebrews chapter 13. Here in Hebrews 13, we find Paul. He's encouraging his Hebrew audience to become Christians who are simply content. And as you make your way to the 13th chapter of Hebrews, well, I want to take a moment to point out that the covetous Christian is not content. The covetous Christian is not content. At the same time, the content Christian is not covetous. That being the case, I want to consider the encouragement that Paul presents here in Hebrews chapter 13. If you would look with me there at verse 5, here Paul declares, let your conduct be without covetousness. And then he says this, be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Paul here was encouraging his audience to overcome their covetousness by becoming content Christians. And just to be clear, the word covetousness, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who literally love the wealth of this world. It was used of those who have this insatiable appetite for the worldly wealth that that never satisfies them. You know that millionaires want to be billionaires? Billionaires want to be George Soros? It's, it's never enough. It's never enough. If, if you work your life to become a millionaire, well, the minute you become a millionaire, then I was, well, I got to join the billionaires club. Sure, it just takes worshiping a Satan a little bit, you know, but... Yeah, it's, it's covetousness, and it's never, it's never satisfying. The covetous person is constantly pursuing more and more worldly wealth because it's never enough. In contrast to this, Paul encouraged his audience to become Christians who are content. That word content, well, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who are satisfied. The word content in the Greek there, it speaks of the satisfaction that we experience whenever we feel like all of our needs have been met. Can can you say this morning, Christian, that you're satisfied? You have everything you need and there's no desire for more. Because that's what Paul is telling us to do. To set aside every covetous desire and learn to be content with what we have. With that, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I content? Am I content with the provisions that the Lord has provided, or am I still struggling with covetous desires? With this question of mine, I want to consider 
a Gallup poll which was published back in February of this year. According to this survey, 41% of us are actually experiencing satisfaction in our lives. 41%. Flipping this around, we can see that almost 60% of us are discontent with our lives. More than half are just discontent with life. We're discontent with our job. We're discontent with our wages. We're discontent with what we own. We're discontent with our, with, with our house. We're discontent with our car. We're discontent with our spouse. We're discontent. And as a result, people start looking elsewhere. What I have is not enough. There's got to be something else. It's the grass is always greener mentality that, well, it's got to be better somewhere else. There's got to be a better spouse. There's got to be a better job. There's got to be a better car. And it's that discontentment that leads to covetousness. And, and if, this is sound, if this sounds like something you struggle with, then I encourage you to embrace the instructions that Paul presents here in Hebrews 13, where he declares, let your conduct be without covetousness. However you want to conduct yourselves, make sure that your conduct is without covetousness. How do we do this? Be content. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Rather than focusing on all the things that we don't have, the Christian, uh, you know, uh, who will simply remember that the Lord will never leave us nor will he forsake us, this Christian will then learn to be content as we begin to just learn how to be satisfied with our Savior's perfect provisions. That being the case, we ought to examine our own lives by asking, am I content? Am I content with the perfect provisions of the Lord, or do my daily decisions actually reveal my dissatisfaction with the provisions that he's given? Sadly, the church is filled with Christians who are allowing their covetous desire for more to keep them from becoming content Christians. And to prove my point, I want to consider something uh, that we find in Luke chapter 3. If you would, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Here we find John the Baptist encouraging uh, his uh, Israelite audience to, to learn how to be content. And as you make your way there to the third chapter of Luke, I just want to take a moment to point out that those who fail to be satisfied with the provisions of our Savior will also fail to become content Christians. The reason why? Well, it's because dissatisfaction tends to become covetousness, and covetousness, well, it typically causes us to engage in an ungodly means to acquiring an ungodly end. Dissatisfaction results in covetousness. Covetousness results in a carnal approach at attempting to acquire what we think God has failed to provide us with. And that's exactly what the people there in first century Israel were doing. There were many who were engaging in ungodly measures to acquire 
the wealth that they desired. And I want to consider how John the Baptist addresses the children of Israel about their own covetous crimes. If you would look with me here at Luke chapter 3, we'll begin reading at verse 7. Here John says to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, he says, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say for yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Sick burn. Even now, verse 9, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him saying, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. And here in these verses, we find John the Baptist, he's challenging the children of Israel who, who were coming out to get you know, baptized in water. He encouraged them to bear fruits worthy of repentance. Now remember, the word repentance simply means a change of mind. The fruits of repentance are the actions that follow that change of mind. The person who says they're repentant, but then there's no change in their life, well, there's no fruits to prove there's real repentance. And with that being the case, John says to these Israelites, he says, hey, bear fruits. You're coming to claim repentance. You're coming to demonstrate repentance, but where are the fruits of that repentance? And they say, well, what should we do? And he hits them first on this issue of being content. Quit ripping people off in an attempt to get ahead in life. Tax collectors were collecting more than what the law required and soldiers were using false accusations against others because they weren't satisfied with their own wages and so they were you know, basically blackmailing people and priests were ripping people off through you know, the temple currency exchange and shop owners were using rigged scales in order to make more money on the products they were selling and, and simply put, uh, many Israelites were allowing their covetous desire for more to keep them from cultivating uh, true Christ-like contentment as they used used criminal activities to get ahead in life. And John the Baptist says, you need to repent of this. And not only that, but you need to bear fruits worthy of, of the repentance. It's sad to say that not much has changed. Yeah, there are many Christians in the church today who are allowing their covetous cravings for worldly wealth to keep them from cultivating Christian contentment. And you see this, you know, when, when, when Christian, you know, put the fish on, on their plumber's van or, you know, they put the fish or the ichthus on, on, on their, you know, architecture design company or their, or whatever, you know, their, their, their whatever their business is, you know, they, they try to advertise themselves as the Christian in the, in this business place, but then they, but then they engage in, you know, shady, shady practices, I've had, you know, people come fix stuff in my house that had the, the, the full-on Christian advertisement, Bible verse on, 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 the, on the van and end up getting ripped off. 
There are Christians in the world of marketing and sales who don't mind lying in order to make the sale. There are Christians who don't mind lying about their competition, spreading rumors about other companies in order to acquire more clients for themselves. There are Christian politicians who stand upon a platform of faith and family only to then engage in deep state deceptions as they deceive the people they claim to represent. Don't get me started on all of the pastors who have no problem preaching deceptive doctrines so that they can fill the pews with more people who are just happy to hear beautiful lies. These are all common examples of ways in which believers become covetous Christians who then, rather than being content, they start engaging in carnal means to acquire the wealth that they desire. This sounds like your struggle. I encourage you once again with Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, where Paul says, let your conduct, yeah, even in the business place, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. With this in mind, it's important for us to realize that covetousness will cause Christians to engage in many deceptive measures and decisions. And not only that, but covetousness will also uh, cause the Christian to begin to stray from the faith. And to prove my point, I want to consider something that Paul wrote in his first letter to Pastor Timothy. With this as the focus, if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. See, it's here in the sixth chapter of 1 Timothy where, where, where we find Paul encouraging Timothy to become a content Christian. And as you make your way there to 1 Timothy 6, I want to take a moment to help you to realize that, that we all struggle with this to one degree or another. We all struggle with being content. And one reason why is due to the fact that we live in a consumer-driven society which is constantly presenting us with wonderful things that we all want. Just as an example, you know in the past 15 years, Apple has released 34 different iPhones? That's roughly equivalent to two iPhones every year. A little bit more than that. Why in the world do we need a new iPhone twice a year? Well, because they can move them. They can sell them. Why can they sell them? Because, oh, you know, my phone, it's not as good as that new one that's out. Covetous consumers are quick to go stand in long lines waiting for the next iPhone. So they keep making them at least two a year. Car companies are constantly offering us the latest and greatest upgrades each and every year as they spend millions of dollars on ads that you know, are designed to convince us that we simply can't live without their disposable status symbols. Got to have that new car. Truth be told, you know, I'm sure that most of us struggle with these consumer-based cravings which lead us to work more hours so that we can make, you know, make more money. We've got we to gotta work more hours so that we can make more money so that we can buy, go buy those things that, that, that I just discovered I can't live without. <clears throat> Meanwhile, our spiritual walk with the Lord begins to suffer. And the reason why is because the covetous consumer uh, has no time for a God who encourages us to be content with the perfect provisions of the Lord. 
well, I can't go to church and serve the Lord in a consistent sort of way. Why? Well, because I got to go work all these hours to pay for all the things that I, that I purchased that I couldn't afford. With this, I encourage you to consider what Paul says here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look with me there, beginning at verse 6. Here Paul declares, now godliness with contentment is a great gain. So it's not that it's just being content. No, no, it's, it's being godly and content. And together, this becomes great gain for the content Christian. And then he points out in verse 7, we brought nothing into the world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. There are no hearses you know, pulling a U-Haul. We're not taking anything with us. That being the case, verse 8, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For notice, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Paul here is helping Pastor Timothy to understand that it's better to be a content Christian who is living a meager life as they serve the Lord than it is to become a backslidden believer who is wasting their life as they pursue the wealth of this world. See, the the covetous Christian who makes worldly wealth their main aim ends up straying from the faith as they continue down a path that will only result in regret and sorrow. This reminds me of the prodigal son. You know, the prodigal son went and asked his father to give him his inheritance in advance. Typically, you know, when a father would pass away, the wealth would then be left to uh, the sons and divided up. And so this kid went to his father and was basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Can I have my inheritance now? And his father, being the gracious man that he was, gave him his portion of the inheritance. And much like many foolish kids, he went and spent it all. He took that money and wasted it on prodigal living, hoping that Caesar would pass some sort of Debt Forgiveness Act so that everybody else would have to pay for his mistakes. But he ended up completely destitute of daily provisions. He found himself eating the slop that was being fed to pigs in the area of the country where he ended up. It was there in the pig pen where he realized that he would do better to be a servant in his father's home than to remain there in that pig pen. So he went home. And his, his father was happy to receive him. His father happily received him because his father was a gracious man. And this is a wonderful picture of our father's gracious love. At the same time, though, this is also a picture of the pitfalls experienced by prodigal Christians who take what they can from God and head on down the road to go spend it on prodigal living. Will God receive you back when you repent? Of course. 
because God is gracious. Praise the Lord. But doesn't this already tell us where we're going to end up if we take this path? Yep. It's just a matter of time. Yeah, it's a party at first. But where do you end up? In the pig pen every single time and without fail. Destitute and discontent. You will not get to the end of this path and realize, look how content I am with everything that I've received. No, you will be discontent and dissatisfied and distraught. And the Lord allows you, uh, allows you to end up there because that's one way that he uses to turn people back to him. Please trust me when I tell you that the love of money will cause many to wander away from the will of the Lord. Money's not the problem. It's the love of money. And those who allow their greedy desires to lead them astray, they will only find sorrow at the end of this evil road. And therefore, we would all do well to learn how to be content with what we have because godliness with contentment is great gain. To further grasp the importance of being content, we should consider something that Peter wrote in his second epistle. So with this as our focus, let's turn in our Bibles now to 2 Peter chapter 2. And as you turn to the second chapter of 2 Peter, I want to point out that Peter here is encouraging his audience to understand yet one more pitfall of being a covetous Christian. And as you're making your way there to the second chapter of 2 Peter, I just want to point out that you know those who desire to be rich will not only be tempted to sin, but, but they're oftentimes caught in a snare. So there's the, the temptation to sin, but then there's the trap that's being set by scammers who encourage us to, to join into their whatever scam it is, right? So, so listen, I, I'm not here to be a financial advisor, uh, and yet I am smart enough to know that the business opportunity that sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Just ask everyone who invested in FTX. And yet it's sad to say that many Christians have gone bankrupt following Bankman Freed. Others have gone bankrupt as they've invested all their money into a popular MLM opportunity, you know, multi-level marketing where, you know, someone comes along and says, oh, this product, it, it sells like hotcakes and, and, and you would do well to invest in this opportunity so that you can turn around and make money like I'm making money off you right now as you prepare to purchase my product. I'm reminded of the time when my stepmother almost bankrupt my father with a garage filled with Mary Kay products. She was certain that she was going to get the pink Cadillac. And what we ended up with was a, a garage full of Mary Kay makeup, which, you know, I was goth at the point in time, so it was good for me, but... But yeah, almost, almost drove my father to bankruptcy. And the world is filled with these pyramid scheme scammers who assure you that you'll make money if you invest in them as they try to sell you the products that they want you to then go sell and so on and so forth. And then next thing you know, everybody hates you on social media because they're tired of hearing about your, you know, your candles or your... You know, essential oils. Yeah, they were essential 
when did that begin? So essential. Necessary. Got to have it. The world is filled with secular scammers who are happy to use our greed against us. And, and, and not only that, but listen, the church is also filled with spiritual charlatans who make merchandise of greedy believers who are happy to give their money to those pastors who are promising the hundredfold increase if you just invest in, in their ministry. Listen, I've been naming and claiming Joel Osteen's wealth for years. And I still haven't gotten it yet, so clearly it's a scam. And yet the word faith preachers are exploiting our covetous desires for health and wealth as they continue to preach their deceptive doctrines. And it's sad to say that covetous Christians are easily led astray by these deceivers. Let's consider how Peter put it here in Second Peter chapter 2. If you would look with me there, beginning of verse 1, here the apostle declares, there were false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow in their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Christian, listen, the world is not only filled with secular scammers who are looking for gullible people to invest in their Ponzi schemes, but there are even leaders in the church who are exploiting our covetous desire for wealth and health, and they do this by duping gullible disciples into believing that the Lord will simply give us more money if we would simply give our money to their ministry. My grandmother was one of these gullible disciples, and she invested all of her money into TBN, when she passed, you know, we went and went through her stuff in her house there in Phoenix and found every single trinket, every single doodad, every prayer cloth, every magical oil bottle, you know, every single thing that they ever said, this is the answer, this is what you need. My grandma sent that money in, she got that, you know, 10 cent trinket and it sat there and collected dust. And she died broke while the people she you know, supported flew around in private planes living in gated communities. Yeah, these scammers are in the church and they're preying on those who are struggling with sickness and they're preying on people who are broke. They're trying to convince us to give our last dime to them because that's the way God's gonna, gonna bless you. Hallelujah. And so many, like my grandma, die broke. All the faith in the world to believe this is going to work. And yet God didn't bless it. They're, they're exploiting our covetousness. I like the way that the scholars who created the King James Version rendered uh, the beginning of 2 Peter 2, verse 3. Uh, they put it like this. Through covetousness shall they, with feigned words, make merchandise of you. You are their merchandise. 
if you fall for their sinful schemes. The scholars who gave us the New Living Translation render the original Greek in this way. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get hold of your money. In other words, the teacher that is greedy for gain isn't concerned about you. No, instead, they're only concerned about your money. And it's for this reason that Paul encouraged us to withdraw ourselves from every Christian leader who sees godliness as a means of gain. The leader who is willing to make up clever lies in order to get a hold of your money isn't interested in helping you to become a content Christian. No, they want you to be a covetous Christian. Because the covetous Christian is easily manipulated. And they're willing to lead you further down the path of covetousness so that they can cash in on your lack of contentment. And yet Paul tells us to withdraw ourselves from every spiritual leader who treats godliness as nothing more than a means of gain. That being the case, it's crucial for Christians to learn how to be content We need to learn how to be content. And with this as the goal, let's consider the encouragement that Paul presented to the Christians at the church in Philippi. If you would, let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. And as you make your way to the fourth chapter of Philippians, I just want to take a moment to point out that covetousness will keep us from becoming content. Because remember, the covetous Christian can't be content. And the content Christian won't be covetous. The covetous Christian is controlled by their concerns about the future. The covetous Christian is concerned that, you know, there's not going to be enough for tomorrow. They they become, you know, anxious because they're not sure if they're going to have enough uh, for retirement. In contrast to this, the Christian who truly believes that the Lord will never leave us, nor will he forsake us, Well, they learn how to be content as they realize that the Lord is always going to provide for us. He's always going to provide everything that we need. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in the fourth chapter of Philippians. Look with me there, beginning at verse six. Here Paul declares, be anxious for, what does that say? Nothing, which is another way of saying what? No things. Be anxious for no things. But in everything, how many things? Everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Paul here is encouraging the Christians there in Philippi to set aside their concerns, to set aside those things causing them to be anxious, and to do this by spending more time in prayer. And sure, presenting the Lord with our prayer requests. There's nothing wrong with saying, God, I would like this and that. Yes, God, I do want a new Ford Bronco. Of course. Who doesn't? But then walking away saying, your will be done. You know, if God wants me to have a new Bronco today or tomorrow, that's his choice. Either one is fine with me. 
but I don't have to be anxious about it. I don't have to be concerned about it. Rather than focusing our attention on the things that we're anxious about, Paul instructed his audience to focus on those things that are true and noble and just and pure and lovely. And and rather than focusing on the things that that we want and those things that make us anxious because we might not have it tomorrow, Paul said, no, no, don't, don't focus on those things. Meditate on those things that are good and virtuous and praiseworthy. And then you'll walk in the peace of God with no anxiety. We need to stop worrying about everything that is causing our concerns about the future. And we should start focusing on just all the promises that the Lord has made to those who trust in Jesus Christ. Yeah, but Bungie, uh, you know, the economists are saying that we're, you know, we're in the middle of a recession and we're going to... Well, have fun if you want to focus on that. Enjoy the anxieties. But if you'd rather walk in peace, focus on the Lord. And that's what Paul is encouraging us to do here in Philippians chapter 4. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 9, here Paul declares the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Remember, he said, don't be anxious about anything, pray about everything, and now if you'll meditate on these things, the God of peace will be with you if you do them. He says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now I realize that this, this verse here is typically used by the Christian athlete who wants Jesus to help them to, to win the competition. They'll, they'll, they'll quote this verse as, as you know, the, God gives me the physical strength to be able to get the, the score, the, the goal units or, or the basket or whatever it is. But in context, that's not what we're, we're not talking about sports here. And listen, if you want to pray for your favorite sports team to, to win their competition, yeah, go for it. But I don't know that God really cares about that. Maybe he does, you know. I mean, if, if, if he does, you know, clearly he wants, you know, any Texas team to win first. But, but, uh, uh, but apart from that, you know, I don't think, I don't think this verse is about athletes and the strength they need to win the event. No, it's about having the strength we need to make it through hard times when God isn't giving us the hundredfold increase that so many pastors promised. Paul doesn't say he was always rich here. He says, I was hungry and I was full. I was abased and I was abounding. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What things is he talking about? Being content. Christ Jesus will strengthen you so that you can be content even when there's a lack of food in the pantry. It's possible that you are struggling 
as a discontent disciple because of some difficult situation and you're wishing that your situation was something else. You might be struggling to be content within uh, the context of your current circumstances. And if this describes how you're feeling today, I want to remind you that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Yes, you can be content in the middle of this tough trial. Whether the, the trial is a health-related situation or a wealth-related situation or whatever the case, Christ can strengthen you to be content in this situation. As a matter of fact, learning to be content in the midst of a tough trial is one surefire way to cultivate this Christian character of being content. Because who struggles with being content when you have everything? Well, millionaires do, but... Oh, yeah, and the, and, and the billionaires. But, but, but seriously, if you're a Christian seeking to you know, uh, serve the Lord and, and you have you know, the bills are paid and, and, and life is just you know, easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy... Yeah, there's no trial in being content. It's easy to be content when the bills are paid. The true test of whether you're a content Christian is when the bills aren't paid. When the money's coming up short. When you don't feel 100%. And with that, I remind you of something that the Lord Jesus said when he taught his disciples to pray. It's in Matthew chapter 6. There our Savior declares, in this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Think about that prayer for a moment. Give us this day our daily bread. Not, give us this day everything that we need for retirement. Give us this day everything that we're going to need for the rest of our lives so that we can... No, give us this day our daily bread. What if God removed from your life all manner of wealth except for just what you needed day by day? Would you be content with that? What if he removed all the food from your pantry, all the money from your 401k, all the savings, every, just removed it all and just said, every day rely on me. Would you struggle? I would. I'm going to be honest. I would struggle with daily bread. And the reason why is because much like Oprah, I love bread. I love bread. I like the way that King Aguirre put it in Proverbs chapter 30. It's there where he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. When we have more than enough, we tend to stop seeking the daily provision of the Lord. When, when the bank account is, you know, filled up with all the cash we need, when the bills are paid, when the, when, when the pantry is full, you know, it's, you know, we can say those, you know, pre-meal prayers, oh Lord, thank you, amen. But when we're broken, we don't know where the next meal is coming from, how hard are we praying? 
And so the king here says, hey, don't, don't give me so little that I profane your name and steal, but don't give me so much that I forget who the giver actually is. I like the way that King David put it when he referred to the Lord as our good shepherd, who's you know, ready to provide us with everything that we need. It's in the 23rd Psalm where David declares, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. How many wants do we have? The scholars who created the New Living Translation put it like this, the Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. The scholars who created the New English Translation rendered the words of David in this way, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Think about that for a moment. If the Lord is your shepherd, then you can rest assured that he's going to provide for every need. At the same time, the person who lacks the daily provisions that we need should take a moment to ask, is the Lord my shepherd? If you don't have your daily provisions, is the Lord leading you? Is the good shepherd guiding you? If he is, then you can rejoice in knowing that he's going to provide you with everything you need. And in this, you can be content. He will lead us to greener pastures. He will lead us beside still waters. And he will protect us along the way. That being the case, we'd all do well to embrace the instructions that Jesus presented on the sermon uh, during the Sermon on the Mount. And with this as the focus, turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And as you make your way to the sixth chapter of Matthew's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the, the, the content, uh, you know, the, the content Christian, you know, is, is no longer anxious about the future. The reason why? Well, it's due to the fact that the, the you know, content Christian has complete faith in the promise that the Lord Jesus presented here in this sermon uh, that he, he spoke uh, on the Mount of Beatitudes. And uh, with this as the attention, if you would look with me here at Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 24, Jesus declares, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now to sum all of this up simply, listen, those who will put the Lord first in their lives, those who will seek the kingdom of God first, well, they can rejoice in knowing that our heavenly father is going to provide us with everything that we need. And knowing that the Lord is able to provide us with everything that we need, including a job, including a paycheck, including you know, a way of, uh, of paying our bills, 
The Lord is able to provide us with all those things as he leads us. With that being the case, we can lay aside the greedy desire for more that leads us to go pursue more than what the Lord is providing. In this way, we'll set aside the covetous desires as we learn how to be content. With this as the goal, I encourage you again to remember what Paul wrote in Hebrews 13 where he says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, rather than living our lives attempting to acquire the things we desire, let's just learn to be content with the things that the Lord has already provided. Let's be thankful, grateful for what God has already given us. And in this way, we'll be set free from the carnal cravings that allow covetous desires to control us. And as we wrestle with the concerns that we have about tomorrow's provisions, Paul encouraged us to remember that our good shepherd has already assured us he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. Now, as we begin to transition from Thanksgiving to Christmas, it's important to realize that the corporations of this world are spending their advertising dollars on advertisements that cause us to become covetous Christians. I mean, just think about it for a moment. How quickly do we transition from, oh, I'm so thankful on Thanksgiving to, you know, Black Friday where I got to have more of everything. It's just overnight. Not even, not even full 24 hours. Now they've got the stores open at midnight, you know, <laughs> on Thanksgiving day. It's like we can't wait to, to go, you know, walk off this turkey, you know, so that we can go fight the crowds in order to get that product that uh, barely reduced rate for, you know, to, because, you know, last year's doodad doesn't have all the bells and whistles anymore. How quickly does that shift? It's just like flipping the switch. I'm so thankful, grateful for everything God has provided us. And let's get out to the, to the mall now. Let's go risk the stampede to get that product. And knowing that the, the majority of Americans are now struggling with Bidenflation, the dollar's completely devalued, products are, you know, through the roof, you know, you better believe that these services that are offering the buy now, pay later, you know, uh, opportunities here, that they're trying to convince us that the best way for us to celebrate the birth of, of our Savior Jesus is by spending money we don't have on things that we don't need, you know, for the baby Jesus. Pretty silly if you think about it. And we, you know, we can't afford it. And then the service comes along and says, yeah, but you can, you can, you can spend them, you know, buy it now. Just get it now. You can pay us later. Don't, don't, don't worry about the interest rate. We'll, we'll settle that, you know, when the, when the bill comes in. Be careful with all of that. Those who spend money they don't have on things they don't need are not being content. Therefore, they're covetous. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying because I don't think it's a sin for Christians to enjoy the consumer aspects of the Christmas holiday. The tradition of celebrating the birth of our Savior with gift giving, I believe, is a wonderful thing. And you guys are more than welcome to give me all the gifts you want to give me. That's totally fine. You know, it's not a sin. But listen, 
we ought to take some time to check our hearts before we get caught up in the consumerism of Christmas. And we need to make sure that our Christmas customs aren't conducted with a heart of covetousness because we are to do no things with covetousness. With this as the goal, I encourage you to consider the instructions that Paul presented in his first letter to Timothy. If you would, let's make our way to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And as you're making your way there to the sixth chapter of 1 Timothy, I just want to take a moment to remind you that we've already considered the context of this passage. Remember, uh, Paul told Pastor Timothy to realize that godliness with contentment is great gain. We've already seen that. Paul also told him that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and it's a sort of evil that then causes covetous Christians to stray from the faith. We've already seen all of that. But now Paul presents Timothy with instructions, encouraging him to move forward in this way. Beginning in verse 11, he says, But you, O man of God, flee these things. What things? The love of money. That leads us down an evil path towards destruction. Flee these things, he says, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Rather than embracing the covetous cravings that stem from the love of worldly wealth, Paul encouraged Pastor Timothy to realize that godliness with contentment is great gain. And with this as the goal, he then encouraged every Christian to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness as we continue to fight the good fight of faith. And in this way, in this way, we'll become Christians who are content with the perfect provision of our good shepherd. Now, uh, with Christmas just a month away, I encourage every Christian, let's examine our own lives by asking, am I pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness? Or am I still just pursuing the wealth of this world? I clamor after every covetous desire. Am I satisfied with the perfect provision of our good shepherd? Or have I become a discontent disciple who spends more time serving my carnal cravings than I do serving our Savior, Jesus. And with this question in mind, I close by encouraging you to remember once again the words that Paul presented in Hebrews 13 where he declares, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Rather than living like a discontent disciple who's being driven by our earthly desires for all the things of this world, let's instead walk by faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we walk by faith with the Lord Jesus Christ, he will help us to learn how to become content Christians. Let's pray.